Leighton Campbell. How are you? Where are you? Feeling pretty relaxed, actually, Shelley. I'm just pouring uh, some uh, maracuya. Oh, it's frozen. So, oh, my God. <laughs> it's frozen, so it all poured out all at once. And I think I just rescued it from absolute disaster. Uh, that was a, uh, an auspicious start to the podcast. <laughs> So literally, I was pouring a carafe of this frozen maracuya drink, and then there's like a big ice ball in it, and then it just like all of a sudden went smash into my glass, and uh, I was trying to contain myself, but I think I managed it with only just a little bit of drip on the edge of the table. And where are you? We're in <laughs> we're in Juarez, and it's uh, high up, around three thousand meters in the Cordillera Blanca. In the Cordillera Blanca is the um, second biggest mountain range outside of the Himalayas in the whole wide world. So uh, yeah, it's pretty, um, it's pretty nice being back up in the mountains and having a rest. Welcome to the How Are You, Where Are You podcast. It's an audio travelogue of our adventures by bike, taking the rough roads with the smooth from London, England to the Hutt Valley of New Zealand. And breaking news, Baden and I have just got over separate but equally horrible cases of food poisoning. Yeah, it's the only, well, I think I've only had it three times on this whole trip. We've been going going for 11 months, so pretty good good record. Uh, Who's to blame? Well, I am sort of putting the blame on this sort of really nice ladies at this market um, in Trujillo where we, were, where we last had a rest day and uh, yeah the market we, we, I think we went there three times while we were th- while we were staying there yeah I noticed you struck up quite a, a good relationship with those lovely ladies yeah they were really friendly and it was the third day that we were there and um, you know they served me out the blade it was quite nice eating away and then I saw them um, cutting up some vegetables just on the bench top with no chopping board or anything. And then I saw them like wipe away some meat off that same bench top. And I thought, okay, I, I hope I come through this one. I was actually back at the back at Louisa's place because I felt ill. I didn't eat anything that whole day. So you had gone by yourself. Yeah. And then yeah, the next day. Ho ho. Well, I don't know quite what's to blame for mine. Uh, the Louisa's place that we were staying at, it was a, it was a bit rough and ready at times in terms of the bathroom for the cyclists and I don't know maybe that was it or maybe it was something I ate I'm not sure but um, the end result was that we had quite tender tummies and churning stomachs when we gallantly jumped back on our bikes. Bates do you want to tell me a little bit about where we are and what's going on? Well, we're about 33k from Trujillo. Woke up this morning with a uh, very runny stomach. And uh, just sort of trying to be sick on the side of the road right now. It's not very pleasant. (laughs) Don't feel very good. You'll be alright though. Come on. You look quite funny because you wear um, bib shorts. You have to like take all your blows off to go to the loo. Yeah. Making a habit of sort of having to go in the bushes, take a little spade down there and dig a little hole. What do you think the people on the side of the road or riding down this motorway think about the, well, white, think the white guy at the side of the road with yeah. their clothes on? Well, some guys tooted before. <laughs> and 
just when I was pulling my pants up, a whole busload of people came past, so <laughs> they all got a bit of an eyeful. So what's the plan? How, how are we going to get you to feeling better? Well, we've got about 34k to get there today, and I don't know if I'm not going to make if I'm going to make that or not. I just really need to sleep, and I feel there's a... Um, 10k away or something we've been told there's somewhere so maybe we can sort of limp there and then I can collapse and die in whatever location that is <laughs> we've completed the 70 kilometers or just under to get to the town of Chow and we have found sufficiently cheap accommodation that has a private bathroom for Baden well Baden you made it how mm. are you feeling now um pretty empty the gas tanks on E. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Was that had I thrown up by the time we did that recording? No, you hadn't. Oh yeah, I threw up, guys, on the side of the road. So that was the first for me in my uh, cycling career. Um, yeah, it was quite graceful there. Sort of <laughs> bent over, screaming my lungs out. It's, yeah. That's how I uh, throw up, by the way, just by going ah. It, he actually does. Yeah. That is how he throws up. But then after that, I did feel a bit better, mm-hmm. and uh, we were going to just go to the town that was um, uh, like 15 or so kilometres less than this, or 20, 20 kilometres less, but somehow I found the energy to carry on and made it, so uh, well, that sets us up okay for tomorrow if I'm able to continue, like, if I don't need a rest day, but I think with plenty of rest tonight, I should be okay. So any uh, words of wisdom or feelings about cycling with diarrhea, cycle touring with diarrhea? Yeah, it's, um, it's not that great. You're really dehydrated and it's really hard to replace those liquids. And especially when it's combined with very little sleep the night before due to noisy Argentinians at the cycle house in your room. Um, so yeah, I can't, I can't say the conditions were perfect, but, uh, yeah, oh, it really, if you do have, um, this terrible illness that I've suffered, oh, if, if you do, if you are unlucky enough, then my advice would be to, uh, don't ride that day. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe I'll follow that next time. Yeah. I also can I just point out at this point I am equally afflicted. It's See. not it's not as serious, but I, I I feel like maybe I sound quite smug on this recording, but I also have diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a beautiful time to be in a relationship. <laughs> Now that we're feeling well again, Baden, we can kind of laugh about uh, the roadside antics oh, and ride it off as just another story from our life on the road. But back in Trujillo, um, there is a treasure trove of cycling stories within the pages of these eight really thick visitor books at the Casa de Ciclista. So this is where we stayed and it's a place where touring cyclists can come and, and seek refuge. Um, and also, you know, in the memory of Luis D'Angelo, he's the guy that runs the place and he's met over 2,000 cyclists in his time. The last four nights we've been staying in uh, Trujillo in Peru at the Casa de Ciclistas. It's uh, quite famous. It opened its doors in uh, 
Bueno, esta casa de ciclistas es una casa que lleva desde el año 85 y empezamos con un italiano que se llama Gianni Cheron Epidotti. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to try and translate. Luis said that he started the house because a friend of his, an Italian, um, was receiving lots of um, cyclists. He owned a restaurant and he was receiving all these cyclists and there were more and more coming. And then he asked Luis, could you help me? Would you be able to continue this? And Luis said, okay, I can do this in my house. And since that time, he's received, you know, hundreds of cyclists from all over the world. He, he's received blind cyclists, he's received paraplegic cyclists, cy cyclists without an arm, children, pets, all sorts of stuff stuff has gone on and this casa this house is here to help cyclists you know who have been robbed or need help with their bikes or just need a rest so and that's what he's been doing all this time muchas historias que son muy lindas de mencionar y de recordar hay mucho historias inspiracional no durante el tiempo aquí have there been many inspirational stories since the time here me gustaría contar uh, una historia eh, de unos chicos que eran de la NASA. Entonces, conversando con ellos, me preguntaron si me gustaría visitar Estados Unidos. Entonces, yo les Oh, okay. So, one time some people came from um, the States and they worked at NASA and um, they said to Luis, you know, do you want to go to the U US? And he said, no, I've never wanted to go there. The only thing I would want to do in the US is go to the museum at Cape Canaveral. <laughs> and then he asked the guy, do you believe in extraterrestrial? electrónico han apuntado hacia allá y se han dado cuenta que el universo es maravilloso y interminable. So yeah, the deep philosophical discussions <laughs> happen at the Casa de Ciclistas. <laughs> so, um, you know, here at the house there's lots of uh, trofeos, trophies and medals that uh, Lucho's won. Like, like, ¿cómo es el ciclismo en Trujillo en Perú? Es... Uh, it is un poco extraño <laughs> como un ciclista en Perú. Is it a bit strange that you're a cyclist here in Peru? Bueno, el, el ciclismo en el Perú, digamos así, que no ha 
tenido el auge, que no ha alcanzado la plenitud como en Francia, como en Suiza, como en Inglaterra, como en otros Okay, so I'm pretty sure you just said that it's it can be a bit tricky sometimes because people don't understand the clothing that's associated with cycling. So lots of people ride their bikes in normal clothes and when they see Luis with his like really tight lycra on, they kind of don't get it and he's like it's because I need to be aero. It's very important in cycling. Um, and he also said, you know, while they don't have the um, you know, breadth of cyclists like other countries like France and England, they actually have a really amazing country for cycling because they have all these great places you can go with, you know, incredible altitudes, so it's great for training. Um, but they just don't have the, the breadth of cyclists. They don't they only have amateur cyclists, no real professional cycling here. Um, so they don't really have that many competitions or anything like that. So yeah, it can be I think a little a little difficult because it's limited here. But um, you know, he really appreciates it and uh, you know hopefully it will you know increase in future maybe posible de hacer una competencia por la dureza de la altitud y el recorrido. ¿no? Lucho, ¿qué es la futura por la casa de ciclista aquí en Trujillo? What, what is the future for the casa de ciclistas here? Bien, eh, la casa de ciclistas ahora estamos pensando, ya tenemos un lugar. Okay, so they're working on a new place, a new house. It's going to be four stories. They've, they've got the first story done, they're working on the second story, and that's for the family to use. And the third and fourth will be for cyclists from all over the world who will be very, very welcome there. Um, the problem is that, uh, you know, they need money to finish the work. Um, so Luis is working really hard, and while we've been here, we've seen him working a lot uh, to try to find the money to be able to finish it, and it's a real dream for him. He wants to be able to offer people a warm welcome and free space to, to be able to do their thing because here in this house sometimes it's a little difficult because there are other people and they don't always understand what what it is to be a cyclist and what it is to travel the world by bike so hopefully in not too long a time he'll be able to welcome people there in the new house con solamente nosotros donde no haya otras personas que que puedan pues este digamos así este no entender qué cosa es un ciclista Muchas gracias, Luis. That's the legend of the Casas de Ciclistas in Trujillo, Luis. And if you're in this part of the world, it's well worth the visit. La Futura es um, estaré muy buena aquí en Trujillo. The future is bright here in Trujillo. So if you're traveling in this part of the world, get on down here. It was such a relief to reach Trujillo after the epic ride that we'd done. I think, how many days riding was it? 11 days? 11 days, 11 yeah. days on the bike. And we finally reached the city of Trujillo and we could relax at Luis's place. Um, we did rest a lot, but we tried to get out and see a little bit. And I was so impressed by the Plaza de Armas, which is what they call the central square in most of the cities in Peru. And it, it was just beautifully preserved, gorgeous colonial buildings with amazing colours. Yeah, it's one of the better preserved ones that we've seen so far. And, and the Plaza de Armas, so central squares, that's normally where we sort of orientate ourselves when we try and find our way into a town. Like, where's the Plaza de Armas? Because then from there we can work out, okay, we can get something to, we know we can get something to eat and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, this one is was very nice, the colours. So, like, for example, the color of the church, what I really like about it is that uh, you say, oh, what color is that? It looks looks yellow to me. They say, no, 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 no. The color is ahi de gallina. Ahi de gallina? Well, ahi de gallina <laughs> is a, um, uh, a chicken dish from uh, northern Peru. 
and the sauce on the creamy chicken sauce is yellow and the church is literally painted that exact same color isn't it yeah there was also beautiful dark reds and bright blues um, and the plaza has an enormous kind of monumental statue in the middle of it it was just very classic and beautiful and well maintained and kind of surprising so we enjoyed that we also liked the cheap food i was quite surprised because i thought in a city i don't know that the food would be more expensive but it was really cheap yeah what were we what were we spending i mean we were like laughing about it weren't we because we were spending say four soles on breakfast so that's might might be about one pound and then we'll go and have lunch and then that was two pounds and then dinner again would be another two pounds so there yeah we've eaten both of us for a whole day for five pounds yeah. uh, and, and they're like two course meals as well they're like proper big plates of food yeah. so. no, the hygiene might not be up to uh, <laughs> you know, European standards but uh, once they work on that they've got the really very good pricey structure at least <laughs> another good thing about staying at the Casa de Ciclistas was that we got to meet another cyclist a Brazilian guy called Daniel and he started where which city was he from i can't remember oh, he's from one of the southern states in brazil um near either the border with argentina or paraguay mm-hmm. and he'd been cycling for about six months and was supposed to finish in the galapagos but he's now thinking that he might just keep going <laughs> yeah and his girlfriend is uh plan- planning to sort of get rid of her job and then jo- maybe join him on the road as well so uh, can he's, he's kind of sold the lifestyle to her and you know that's the whole point of going to the Casa de Ciclista was hoping to meet other touring cyclists there's a thing about it that we really love it because I don't know it sounds a bit um oh, it's just easy to relate to them it because they understand what what we've been doing and what it takes to get from place to place um, and it was also interesting as well because he'd had a big mechanical his his rim was blown out completely blown out so it was it was interesting to see how he coped with that and um, to see Luis's mechanical expertise and helping him fix it yeah I know it was, um, it was it was a long process really to get his wheel sorted but um, yeah I think he, he rode off just after we left and yeah hopefully he uh, rode off nice and happily with a, a rear wheel because he had to um, uh, spend quite a long time in a bus getting to Trujillo so it's really hard to source or actually find a decent bike mechanic for one but also it's a total nightmare to source parts and yeah that's why I was really lucky there wasn't I, I I've been needing a tire for a long time and we arrived in Trujillo and my tire was completely bald and so luckily uh, Louise had this friend called Jean-Baptiste from Canada and he had this spare Schwabler tire which is like the best brand for cycle touring tires and he had a spare one exactly in my size so I have this difficult size tire that I need for my bike and so it was kind of like a miracle um, yeah so oh, here comes a what is this there's a guy walking past us now he's got his pan flute and he's just oh he's a knife grinder yeah, so he's basically got one wheel and this kind of like, uh, yeah, stone. Uh, and it's connected, to, it's like a bicycle wheel and then it's got the stone sitting on top of this metal frame. And yeah, he stops outside the restaurants, plays his pan flute and then um, the restaurant people bring out their knives and he sharpens them up. So we're going to get a bit of that in the podcast. So it was it was amazing for you to get your tire and and it was it's been great riding with it, um, especially what we've gone through over the past 
few days, but we'll go into that yeah, in a minute. Yeah, so, yeah, with Daniel, the three of us, uh, we took a, a ride, maybe, well, we got in a combi van sort of thing, but we took a um, about a four-kilometer trip out of town um, to go and visit um, an, an abandoned pre-Columbian city of Chan Chan. Sean bienvenidos a Chan Chan, la ciudad de adobe más grande del mundo prehispánico, que es capital de la cultura chimú, de los círculos más importantes de la costa norte del Perú, que se desarrolla en el siglo XII. Welcome to Chan Chan, Baden. Have you enjoyed your visit here today? What What are your thoughts? Well, as our friend uh, Daniel was just saying to us, it's kind of like a glorified sandcastle, <laughs> and I kind of agree. Like, because you're right on the beach, I can hear the sea behind me here and uh, you sort of feel that okay once you walk through the complex this sort of this per like this maze of giant sandcastles uh, you'll finally get to the beach and then you'll have your opportunity to make your own sandcastle <laughs> it's really strange though to look around and just see desert all around the city um, it's a it's ruined now and just to try to imagine it full of life I mean this was a community that or a city that relied on agriculture and fishing and so you know there would have been some really big green patches all around the city I imagine well the only green patch now is in the previous place where they had this big reservoir uh, where they got all their water um, but what is Chan Chan Shelley apart from a cool sounding name <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it was the main city of the Chimu people, and it's a pre-Columbian city. Um, and it was abandoned once the Inca came and kind of took over and conquered, conquered this people. But it's uh, one of the largest cities in South America, I think, made of adobe. So it was like 20 kilometers, um, 20, square kilometers. 20 square kilometers, and some of the walls reached up to 10, 12 meters high. And they've just been worn down over the past how many thousand years? It was Is built it? in 1320. Okay. So sorry. only, yeah, only, 15. Only 1500 years. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, now they've worn down. And Daniel, you're admiring the strength of this building material, Adobe. Yeah? Yeah. So what's so good about it? It's good because it's cheap, it's local and last long as we can see <laughs> yeah but not so long i mean it's quite interesting that you know several el nino storms has really destroyed the place like they said the walls used to be up to 10 meters high i reckon at the moment five max no they're big man that could be six seven meters yeah but it's not what it was and uh, yeah the desert has really come and it's taken a lot of this place away as long as well as the Inca conquest <laughs> and then the, and then the subsequent Spaniards coming and raiding the place for treasure because like they had all these rooms within the complex called audience rooms and they all had these um, little cubby holes where treasure we you know where they decorated and put treasure. treasures and stuff like that in there <laughs> and then then the Spanish came along and and just took all that away mm. so that yeah, was nice well, they've still, it's something that's uh, interesting to come and see and you do have to use your imagination a little bit when you're walking around, but it's super impressive. One of the craziest things though is that we got in a combi van uh, to be taken out here and then the guy just like, chan, 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 and you just get dumped on the side of the road and you're literally like, where the hell are we? 
It, I mean, it's what four kilometers from Trujillo where we've been staying, and uh, you you basically pretty much just dumped on the side of the road. Although as you're saying, Daniel, without the the sack <laughs> over your head, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you just walk blindly into the desert, and then you come across this historic city. Yeah, you see the big walls in the distance, and it's like, whoa, what is that? of nowhere. Yeah. Amazing. We're recording here today in Parque Ginebra, which is Ginger Park, and it's only a little park um, uh, surrounded by a few shops, a bar, a couple of hostels, and probably some people's houses. And it's sort of tucked away behind the busier streets of Huaraz. And in the background, I'm not sure if you can hear the sound of a political rally that's going on. So I think they've closed a couple of the bigger roads and they have um, an Andean band playing and some, some singers kind of droning on. It's, it's not the best. And one guy there kind of announcing for this presidential candidate, candidate Cesar and Cesar, what's his name? Acuna. Acuna says his name enough written on the side of the road. Yeah, yeah. We because the elections are less than two months away. There's so much like, so many slogans painted on houses and walls all the way along the road. And every time I see his name, I always think Acuna Matata. But, <laughs> but yeah. So it's a nice little spot. We're just sitting here with our maracuya juice, enjoying it in the shade. Um, We've been riding a lot off-road over the past kind of few days, so it's nice to have a rest here because we were completely physically drained by the experience of uh, riding over 100 kilometres on just a rocky stone dirt road. Um, and it's amazing how much extra energy it takes to get you from A to B when the road is not smooth. <laughs> yeah, we've been exhausted. Like, the road not being smooth was kind of like... Uh, was sort of jarring my neck and we had at the end of every day we've had all these sort of aches and pains but somehow the miracle of sleep seems to repair them but um yeah it's kind of made me uh, understand a bit more what it's like to be some of these like proper adventure cycle tourists the likes of neil and harriet pike and this guy nathan haley i think his name from velo freedom where they they only like to ride on these off roads they always like to find these sort of back road routes they're crazy yeah and that, that's what we've been doing you know we we turned off the the big highway and just basically straight on to this rough gravel rocky you know it was very um you know like the little joys that you would get were when you had a smooth run for about 20 meters uh, <laughs> before you're jolted by more sort of rocks yeah. and it it felt like just being on Jadabaz uh, for 125k, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was really rough going, but and and the shame of the poor road is that you don't really appreciate the scenery as much. We were been riding up the uh, Rio Santo, the Santo River, and in a canyon um, for most of the, most of the time, really. In fact, all of the time, we're still following the Rio Santo all the way up here to Huaraz. Um, and even further when we start heading off towards Lima. So, um, yeah, we just had like these massive mountains just dwarfing us uh, as, as we ride along. And, but it's when you have to sort of focus on the road ahead of you um, to work out where the, the clean lines are to get through all these bumps, you kind of lose that appreciation for the scenery. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I think it's tiring as well because it takes a lot of concentration. Yeah. on the road and when you ride for seven hours and you're just staring at the road most of the time it's just like oh my god yeah i was <laughs> dreaming it at night as well like oh. and even even last night you know we're having a rest day today and i woke up 
you know, three in the morning and I was just had a dream about cycling along and then I was just feeling like my legs were hurting. <laughs> yeah. So, well, man, it's, it's totally getting in the brain. <laughs> so it's nice here to have a rest because, um, you know, for me especially, I, I, found, I found it really hard and I think you had to give me quite a lot of encouragement and um, towards the end I was kind of getting used to it but I was being spurred on by the dream and the promise of paved road again. Yeah. Which, which some locals told us, we arrived in a town on the second night and some locals, or third night, and some locals told us, yeah, I think the, the road is p paved after this particular town. I was just like, please let this be true. But um, on the plus side, there wasn't a lot of traffic. We were on these back roads, um, but equally- yeah, I think like the, the second day on, on the back roads, I think we only counted maybe 10 cars or vehicles that went past us. So we had the place to ourselves, which was kind of airily, quiet apart from the rushing river yeah we got to take some really nice photos that make us look way more adventurous than we really are but also there weren't that many people around the towns were really small and there was a lot of indigenous people and well some of them will give you a smile and a wave a lot of them don't really want to have a chat with you yeah we're finding some of the peruvian um indigenous people to be very shy you know it's their prerogative and that's fine yeah. um but it's hard to read really because some people couldn't be more welcoming. Yeah. So you like you cycle along and you just don't know what reaction you're going to get. But yeah. we always just offer smiles anyway and uh, we see what comes back from that. <laughs> the last 10 kilometers or so we've been riding in Canyon del Pato, the Duck Canyon and it's been absolutely spectacular it's whoa man we've had some grinding days last few days and this is our reward to ride to have the pleasure of riding in just one of the most spectacular landscapes of this trip and uh basically this canyon it's got i don't know a thousand meter way more two thousand meter cliffs on either side of us with, I don't know, maybe I can, looks like about a 500 meter drop at least down to the river. It's probably been deeper at times, it's probably up to a thousand in some places. Uh, and the river, uh, I think it's the Rio Santa has been just like gushing through. And we followed it, we've, we've basically been following the same river all the way up from the coast. And wow, it's incredible. Like. So where we are, it's the, the joining of the, of the Cordillera Negra and the Cordillera Blanca. And Cordillera is like mountain range. So these two mountain ranges are joining together and within pretty much touching distance. And we're in like the little, like the little narrow gap that runs down the middle uh, of these two giant mountain ranges. All this loose rock. Just all the different textures. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing. I just don't, I can't imagine. They built this road in the early 1900s and I, I just don't get how they did it. It's so precarious here. Um, it's called Duck Canyon, which is not a particularly um, exciting name, I guess. Uh, Baden, you were telling me you were reading that a TV program about dangerous roads made up a name for this road so to make it seem a bit more exciting, the Road of the Dead none or something yeah something like that yeah 
But um, it's actually called, we were having a, a quick breakfast in Wayanka, which is the town just before the canyon. And uh, over our mug of hot Avena and our egg sandwiches, we were asking a guy who was also having breakfast and he said it's called Duck Canyon because when they started constructing it, there was a big colony of wild ducks living here. So the name just kind of Why stuck. Not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely spectacular. And uh, what, one of the, the big features of it, should we start riding yeah, again? Okay, we'll start riding off. That was my Garmin clicking that it's about to start, start riding again. But one of the features of it is there are 35 tunnels. And these tunnels have been hand cut. And uh, there's, see we're riding into one of the tunnels now. Oh my God, I'm wearing my sunglasses. Hold on, uh, this is stupid. I'll take, take the old sunnies off. Um, and yeah, 35 tunnels all hand cut. And they're only, this is only a, a single lane road. So there's a bit of an etiquette as you come in, you know, with buses and stuff like that. They have to sort of reverse out, but with cyclists, they just sort of squeeze past. Hey, are you liking the tunnel show? I get a funny feeling when I'm inside the tunnels. When we get to the middle of the tunnel, I, can, I feel like I can feel the weight of the, the whole mountain on top of me. And I feel like I get a weird nervous feeling in my esophagus. <laughs> <laughs> Those old esophagus feelings. Yeah, yeah. We, we just passed another little shrine here on the side. So maybe that's the dead nun. <laughs> but, uh, and here you, again, you can hear the rushing river. And, oh, my, this is, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel very lucky to be here. Let's talk about where we've come today. We are around 15 kilometers into our journey from Caraz to Juarez um, along the Cordillera Blanca. And uh, we've come to what was a village, um, quite a thriving village, called Wan Guay, or Yun Guay. And basically, in a matter of minutes, the whole town was buried. Um, with 25,000 of its inhabitants inside in what was the worst natural disaster ever recorded here in the Andes. So what happened, it was the 31st of May in 1970. It was around 8 o'clock at night and it was the same night that they were doing the playing the opening game of the 1970 Football World Cup in Mexico and uh, so a lot of people would have been watching that game and then this area was struck by an 8.0 earthquake and so you can imagine you know the village would have been you know completely shocked and traumatized by what just what massive jolt had just happened it, it, uh, it also largely destroyed a lot of the villages around here that earthquake but Yungwai in particular behind us is the, uh, the 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 highest mountain in Peru? I think it's called Hawascaran. Hawascaran, and uh, basically what happened is the earthquake jolted off um, uh, a massive chunk of one of the high faces, and it came tumbling down the mountains. And this was like fifteen thousand cubic feet 
or cubic meters of glacial rock that was moving down the mountains at speeds of up to 320 kilometers an hour. So basically the people here of Yungwai had no time to react and they were completely buried. And for the Peruvian authorities, you know, there was really no chance of finding any, um, any survivors. And so they turned this whole place where we're walking now into a national cemetery. And yeah, it's kind of uh, been solemn really to get the bikes off the road and come walking down here and see see what happened. What, what, what do you think of this place, Charles? Well, I think it's a really beautiful memorial. They have made some lovely gardens here and you have to pay an entrance fee which helps to maintain them. Um, and they've left a couple of reminders in the form of a destroyed bus and um, the some remains of the church, which was completely ruined. They also built a replica of the facade of the church and it's it's all quite touching. There's some scattered tombs around and also frighteningly enormous boulders are just randomly plonked um, in what's quite a big sort of sloping field the area where the village was and just the thought of those massive boulders rolling down that mountain that we're looking at I mean it's enormous it's so steep it's just terrifying it's terrifying to think of this is the second time we've passed a site like this on our trip uh, back in uh, Amero in Colombia, it was a volcanic eruption that caused a massive lava flow that wiped it out. But here it was an earthquake that caused all the rocks to come down. So the landscape uh, looks a bit different than it did in Amero, but the result was the same. You know, 20 to 25,000 people buried alive, dead. Baden, what is it that you've got there on your plate for lunch today? In short, it's guinea pig KFC. <laughs> Any more questions? How have they presented it to you? It doesn't massively resemble a guinea pig, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, that was kind of. I was kind of worried that we're going to have like this, the head on the plate as well, and like its little paws <laughs> sticking out, like looking all sad. But no, it looks like it's a couple of chicken breasts, really, yeah. uh, with the Colonel's secret herbs and spices. <laughs> but um, if you chew in below the secret herbs and spices, you find a guinea pig. So what's the texture like? What does it taste like? Well, the texture's a bit like chicken, but it's probably a bit of a tougher meat than chicken. Um, but it's very tasty. Nice little sauces and stuff to have it with. And um, the only creepy thing is, is that when I'm picking it up and eating it, as you would with KFC, um, it's kind of weird when you picture that it's you're holding a little guinea pig. Oh man! Yeah. So hang on. Do you, you don't you f you do feel a little bit bad about eating a guinea pig? Yeah, I do a bit because you know guinea pigs are pets where we come from, but here in Peru they're not. They're food, and you know when you're in the highlands, you just why not eat what the locals eat? And yesterday we're down the market, and we saw these ladies with like uh, a couple of bags of live guinea pigs and women were coming up oh, yeah, I'll, I'll have two guinea pigs please and they're checking them out yeah they seem plump enough shove them in your bag go home and eat guinea pig for dinner or as they call them here qui yeah so it's just part of the thing here so 
you know, I don't know if I'd go to Vietnam and eat cat or anything. Uh, well, why not? If you're willing to eat a guinea pig, why would you not eat a cat? Yeah, no, these are tough ethical questions. And I'm, I'm, I imagine people are judging me on this right now. But I really want to try guinea pig. And I'm sorry, but I'm kind of glad that I did. Maiden, what's next for us? Well, I think we're going to keep following the Rio Santa right really to its source. Um, there's this big uh, lagoon called Konokocha up at around 4,000 metres. And the road where we're heading sort of goes in that direction. So I guess we'll, we'll yeah, follow it from sea to source, which is kind of a cool thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of cool. So and then from there, we drop down again back to the coast back to the desert probably uh, I'm not really sure what it's going to be like but the drop is going to be 4,000 meters right down to sea level so uh, yeah hopefully we'll better we better like make sure our brakes are all prone for that <laughs> and then it's into Lima another capital city and so I think we've visited all the capital cities in Latin America that we've all the countries that we've visited and so Lima is another one and oh no we didn't visit Managua in Nicaragua so no, I do that. have my little regrets about that <laughs> um, maybe we'll turn around and go back no. <laughs> but yeah in Lima so yeah we'll bring the next podcast to you from Lima are we nervous about cycling in Lima yeah well the, to be honest the driving in Peru is not really great for cyclists um, you know there's not a lot of re- people aren't showing us a lot of respect on the road they, people cut us off toot horns and like air horns in our ears and stuff yeah. like that it's pretty rude yeah. um and so yeah from what we've heard people were saying that oh what you're going to be cycling in lima yeah awesome <laughs> so uh, yeah wish us luck <laughs> well that's our podcast for this time thank you very much for listening you can uh, post a comment if you'd like on the how are you where are you blog uh, how are you where are you.com we'd love to know how you are and where you are Um, Also on the blog, we've got photos that match this podcast. We've got links so you can subscribe to the podcast. We've got an interactive map on there so you can see how each of our days in the saddle have gone. You can find Baden online at Baden C on Twitter or Baden Cycling on Instagram. Thank you very much as always. Whoa, it's got really windy. (laughs) It's like the dramatic finish to the podcast. Thanks as always to Callum Campbell for the original music on the podcast. He performs under the name Runtime. You can find him on SoundCloud. And yeah, until next time. Ciao. Bye. Bye.